This session, oh, uh, uh, chart 16, please. Uh, this session today, prob probably more than any that have come before, I, I know that if I sat in a chair and listened to what is about to be said, it wouldn't be enough. Afterwards, I'd say, wait a minute now, wait a minute, what did he say? Or, I'm not sure I agree with that. What's, I don't understand. Please, I encourage you to obtain the notes uh, to this session so that you can go back and make sure you got it. Or that you have an issue with it, whatever. But it's very easy to do at my website or if you like, there's a list of people who get the notes every week. Just tell me and I'll put your name on that. If you want it just for this session, that's fine. You don't have to commit yourself as... Uh, I'll do it just once, but please. If we bother, if we're bothering to do this, let's do it right. Our last session two weeks ago concluded with Satan and his angels being thrown down to the earth. After losing the war initiated by Satan against the holy angels of heaven, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. This will be the second and last time Satan and his angelic minions will be punished and demoted by God. The first time resulting in Satan losing heaven as his official residence, but not losing access to it. This second time resulting in Satan losing all connection with the precincts of God. His next place of residence will be the abyss for 1,000 years. After that, his eternal residence will, will, residence will be the lake of fire. I have posited that verses 7 to 17 of chapter 12 comprise an amplification, a fleshing out, as it were, of verses 1 to 6. He gives the outline in 1 to 6, and then 7 to 17 fleshes it out even more. In verse 4, for example, we're told that the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. With the additional details of verses 7 to 9, we learn that this is because of the war in heaven and that the stars swept by the dragon's tail are in actuality the demonic angels being collected up for accompanying their master to their new home on earth. Now let me add a sidebar here. Let me interject at this point a note about that perennial question which has been raised both in this class and beyond. Almost certainly since time immemorial. To wit, why does Satan do it? He knows he must lose. He's read Scripture. He's not stupid. He's rather intelligent. 
Why does he attempt something so futile as to attack the holy angels of God? In a comment I found enlightening, Joseph Seiss responding to the phrase in verse 8, they prevailed not in the King James. In the NASB, they were not strong enough. Referring to the demonic angels. He wrote this. Satan might have known that this would be the result. But now note this. But pride... Depravity and malice have wonderful power to blind the mind to reason. And truth. And to give brazen hope even where there is not the slightest ground for hope. Satan has ever been so successful in the past, both in heaven among the angels and on earth with the human race. And his proud daring is so unbounded that he does not hesitate to believe that he can break even the decrees of almightiness. So he attempts it. That's Joseph Seiss. That's a possible explanation we can hang our hat on. Don't we see it every day in, for example, politicians? Now, I won't name names, I won't name parties, but the party will issue a statement that is empirically a lie, bald-faced lie. Their people then repeat it they repeat the lie ad nauseum until even they begin to believe it. They go to bed at night thinking it's true when originally they understood, well, we're just telling a lie to get it what we want. By the middle of the tribulation, after thousands upon thousands of years of hate and intrigue and duplicity, the mind of Satan will be so twisted and perverted that he may actually believe he can win against God. That is, ironically, after an entire career of lying to man about God, that venom has successfully corrupted his mind even more than man's. I can, I can see that as a real possibility. Yes, absolutely. Blinded. He's been the one blinding us, but he's blinding himself at the same time. So he thinks he can, well, I might win this. Possible. Who knows? Now to our text. At this point, a victory celebration of sorts rises in heaven. Let's read Revelation 12, verses 10 to 12a, please. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Chart 15, please. 
Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. We cannot identify with certainty the owner or owners of this voice. Note the plural, our God. Except to conclude that it is essentially a human voice. Now, there's different, different opinions on this, as there is there all about all of this. Later in this verse is the phrase, the accuser of our brethren. Angels do not refer to humans as their brethren. So I would say this voice is not God. It's not Christ. It's not angels. It's a human voice. Angels refer to humans as fellow servants, yes, but not brethren. Thus, we conclude that this loud voice in heaven is the voice of praise coming from the redeemed saints in heaven, and quite possibly the voices of those previously martyred in his name, individuals who have vocally cried out for retribution and vengeance. Turn please back to chapter 6, Revelation 6. Wait a minute, who has that? Yeah, that's what I thought. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Note in that passage that these were slain, quote, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, end quote. We'll see this again in verse 11 of our text. But at this point, I need to confess that for me, this extended passage, verses 7 to 12a, is very confusing. Didn't stop me, but it was very confusing. Let me put it this way. If I were an editor and a writer submitted this paragraph to me, it would be handed back to him covered with blue covered blue pencil marks. And I'd tell him to rewrite the whole thing, making it more coherent. The problem here is not just the standard obstacle in the revelation of prophetic language and fantastical imagery. In this passage, and especially verses 10 to 12a, the use of vague pronouns leaves the reader at a loss to know who is doing what and where and when. We, it's, we don't know on the surface what's going on, who's doing it, and what they're doing. Verses 7 to 9 make it crystal clear that this war during the tribulation, but taking place in heaven, is an angelic war and has just been won by the good guys. And there was war in heaven, 
Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and the great dragon was thrown down. Verses 7 and 9a. There is no mention of any participation in this war by human beings. Verse 10, not unexpectedly, then follows immediately with a song of praise for the victory. But then the text gets very confusing because, for one thing, it's predominantly by and about humans. Not the angels who have just won the victory against Satan. Let's work our way through this. And from here on out is where I... Uh, it, you'll have the advantage of having the text of, for this in front of you. Begins, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. The Apostle John hears a loud voice. And we gather from the plural pronouns that follow that this is probably an instance of myriad voices praising in unison. That happens several times in the eschaton. But why do the voice, who do the voices belong to? Verse 10 continues, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So far, so good. Our question is not yet answered. From this, the voices could be either angelic or human or both. But we can take this to be a standard proleptic or prophetic aorist reference to the kingdom being established after the tribulation, yet so certain that it is spoken of as having already occurred. So at this moment in time, in the timeline, saying, ah, the kingdom has come. Well, yes, it has. It's, we've taken one more step toward its realization. Continuing, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Here we learn that the hour refers to humans. Only humans, not angels, would speak of our brethren. And it is and always has been humans accused, quote, before our God day and night by the great accuser. Job 1, 11, chapter 2, verse 5, and Zechariah 3, verse 1. Up to this point, we have human beings that is, redeemed, glorified saints in heaven, rejoicing that Satan, the accuser of our brethren, has been thrown down. Within this verse, the angels did the work and the humans are rejoicing that the work was done. But things go sideways in verse 11. Now, generally, I like things that go sideways, but this time it was confusing. Verse 11, and they overcame him. First, all our common versions place all three verses, except for the setup in verse 10, within quotation marks. That is, all three verses are stated by the same voice or voices. Humans in heaven. There are no close quotes at the end of verse 10. That being the case, who are they who overcame him? 
which is just another way of saying conquered. It's a pretty safe assumption that the him would be Satan. We can buy that. That's, that's the easy part, the accuser. And if we stopped here, we might sensibly assume that they refers back to the angels that defeated Satan in the recent war. That would be the logical conclusion. A second assumption might be that they refers to the brethren, the them in the previous verse. But the brethren received the benefits of the war. Retribution, vengeance, not the victory itself. They were not the victorious warriors in the battle. The angels were. Further leading us toward a human they, however, is the rest of the verse. Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is clearly speaking of those for whom, quote, the blood of the Lamb would mean their salvation, verse 10, and atonement. Humans, not angels. Only humans are redeemed. Only humans need to be atoned for by the blood of Christ, not angels. Verse 11 seems to paint a picture of earth-based followers of Christ. But who and when? It becomes necessary at this point to determine a time frame so as to correctly identify these who have or will overcome the adversary. Still with me? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I can feel people drifting out the door as I speak. <laughs> Just hit the high points, Lample. Just the high points. <clears throat> okay. To be precise... Knowing the time frame will make it possible to determine who these faithful martyrs are that are spoken of in verse 11. When did they or will they overcome Satan and how they gained the victory? Let's first consider an historical perspective. A remark made by the least of my handful of commentators for this study, seems at first to be easily dismissed. Yet it also opens up a can of worms that just may challenge some of our preconceptions. Alan F. Johnson writes this, At the time of Christ's death on earth, Satan, get out of here, there is a, Spider, he was up here during the sermon. I thought, what? Probably coming out of the plants. <clears throat> Go away. Get back, Satan. At the time of Christ's death on earth, Satan was being defeated in heaven by Michael. By this and subsequent text, Johnson is saying that this war between good and evil, between Michael and Satan, was concluded, one, at the cross. When Christ died as the atonement lamb in approximately A.D. 26, give or take. 
Johnson continues, In times past, Satan's chief role as adversary was directed toward accusing God's people of disobedience to God. The justice of these accusations was recognized by God. And therefore, Satan's presence in heaven was tolerated. Now that's a good point. We should, we should tuck that away because we often wonder, we often ask the question, why would God permit Satan in heaven? What's he still doing there? Doesn't, doesn't God, doesn't, he doesn't want sin around him. Well, the justice of these accusations was recognized by God, and therefore, and God was saying, you know, Satan would say, hey, let me point out what these people are doing. And God would say, yeah, you're right. They are doing that. They are sinning against me. They are rebelling. You have a point, Satan. Therefore, Satan's presence in heaven was tolerated. But now the presence of the crucified Savior in God's presence provides the required satisfaction of God's judgment, God's justice, with reference to our sins. And he cites 1 John 2, 1-2 and 4.10. Therefore, Satan's accusations are no longer valid and he is cast out. Based on the position that this war and Satan's ejection from heaven takes place during the tribulation, my immediate response to this was that Christ has remained our advocate against the accusation of Satan's even till now. How then can Johnson's position be valid? Then I realized. that if one takes the position that this passage in Revelation, now this, this may be new to you. You may not have thought this through. If one takes the position that this passage in Revelation narrates the fall of Satan at the cross, all of our references for Satan being there before God in heaven, accusing the saints, are from the Old Testament. Every commentator I've run into always cites Job and Zechariah, as I have in my notes already. This reference in Revelation 12 would not count since it's describing something that happened at the outset prior to the New Testament being written. Now, it's always possible that I simply could not find what I was looking for, but after considerable searching and cross-referencing, I came up empty in my effort to find New Testament, that is, post-ascension, evidence for Satan accusing the saints in heaven. In all the reference material, used for a study of this, the writers always go back to Job and Zechariah, both Old Testament, never New Testament. So maybe we should not quickly dismiss Johnson's position, which is that all the references to Satan's defeat 
at the cross are literal rather than positional or prophetic. Isn't that how we have generally thought of Satan being defeated at the cross? We kind of put that defeated in quotation marks. Well, that's positionally. The, the believer in Christ, the, 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 the sacrificial blood says that we no longer need fear Christ or Satan. He no longer has any power over us. He can still be a nag. He can still affect our situation around us, but he no longer has any power over us. And that is his defeated. Yes. You can. You can. I'll, that way I can blame you when we run over. Just made me think of, wasn't it the Apostle Peter who denied Christ? Was that after his resurrection? that God said, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you? It was after his resurrection, before his ascension. So that does fit with your Old no. Testament verses. You follow my, my thoughts? Oh, 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 oh. I don't remember which... In the garden? Okay, thank you. So then, it would still fit because he had, even more so, because he had not been sacrificed on the cross yet, which is, for, for this argument, Old Testament. Yeah, but good point, yeah, yeah. As usual, I know it's there in the Bible somewhere. Where? I have no idea. But So thank you, guys. Uh, now I just need to find where I was. Oh, yeah. So his position is that all the references to Satan's defeat at the cross are literal rather than positional or prophetic, that our Savior's advocacy before the Father is accomplished by His presence alone. And not that He is literally today arguing against the accusations of Satan before the throne. More on that in a minute. <clears throat> the standard dispensational pre-trib, pre-mill, pre-everything position would be that our passage in chapter 12 speaks of Satan losing a war and being ejected from heaven sometime during the tribulation, which would disengage the literal act from Satan's positional status since his defeat at the cross. These are heady and profound considerations, but we have to move on to consider Two other possible interpretations of this passage, actually just one, but one which can be assigned to either of two different time frames. It helps us to understand, it helps us understand this passage if we separate the practical physicality, as it were, of this angelic war and its immediate result, Satan banished from heaven from its more cosmic salvation and kingdom-oriented ramifications. 
Maybe I should say that sentence again. It helps us if we separate the practical physicality of this angelic war and its immediate result, which is Satan banished from heaven, from its more cosmic salvation and kingdom-oriented ramifications. We're talking about Christ coming to power, coming into his kingdom. That's a biggie. That's cosmic. Doing so frees us from the seeming confusion introduced by vague pronouns and discovering humans where we might expect angels. For example, if we consider this passage from that perspective, we see that it's all about humans, isn't it? That is mankind and for mankind. Stripped down to the essentials, why do Michael and his angels engage in this war with Satan and his angels? Is it for their, is it for their ultimate benefit? Huh. Or is it for man's? And the purity and sanctification of the eternal kingdom. Isn't that what's going on in all this bile that we've been waiting through this tribulation period? Isn't that what it's all about? Cleaning things up in preparation for the kingdom. Getting rid of rebellion and sin before Christ returns. I contend that, as is usual with angels, Michael and his angels fight the war on behalf of humans, mankind. There's a poetic symmetry to this as well. At the same time that the earth is being purified, of all sin and rebellion by those in opposition to God and His Christ, heaven is being purified at the same time of the same thing, all opposition to God. Satan and his angels swept out of heaven. Let's clean up heaven, let's clean up earth. Then Christ returns. With this in mind, We should not be surprised that the joyful hymn of praise is offered by a chorus of redeemed men and women in heaven. They're the ones getting all the benefit of this. It's their victory. It's a victory for them. Taken as a whole, verses 7 to 12 this passage demands that we set it in the environment and time frame of the eschaton. That being the case, we can take verse 10 as speaking in the practical present tense. That is, the accuser of our brethren has been cast down right now, not 2,000 years ago. And he who accuses them before our God day and night has been stopped right now not 2,000 years ago. To answer some of the questions about how or why, let's look closely at these next phrases. Because of the blood of the Lamb. Here's where we get back to the cosmic. In verse 11, we get hung up on the vague pronoun they, in and they overcame him. If angels, the rest of the verse makes no sense at all. If humans, 
How could they overcome Satan? But Henry Alford points us in the right direction with his thoughts on this verse. Here's what he writes. And they conquered him on account of the blood of the Lamb. That is, by virtue of that blood having been shed, not as in the English version, by the blood. In other words, it's some magical thing that takes place. The meaning is far more significant. Their victory over Satan was grounded in, was a consequence of his having shed his precious blood. Without that, the adversary's charges against them would have been unanswerable. It is Christ in his, his sacrifice that has brought the victory. For angels? No. They don't need that. For us. Wars and battles, winners and losers, victory and defeat, all pale when set against that which has come, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. That's what is important here. And let me toss in another sidebar. Even though our time frames do not agree, Johnson is right about at least one thing, I think. I believe he is. Do we really believe, now this is, how have you pictured it? Maybe it's different from how I've pictured it. In my mind, it's always been, here's God on his throne. Christ at his right hand. Somewhere in the vicinity is Satan. And he's saying, look what they just did. Look what that sinner just did. Look what Lample just did. What are you going to do about it, God? Christ leans over and says, "Uh, he's mine. Okay, never mind. Do we really think that's how it happens? Do we really believe that with Satan accusing believers to father God, he requires Christ at his right hand to literally argue the point like two attorneys in a, in a trial? No, the very presence of the Lamb who was slain is sufficient and far more eloquent than any spoken words. Christ, His presence, the Lamb that was slain, His presence alone shuts up Satan. If He's still there, if he, whatever He says to God, I think God would say, uh, yeah, but my son has taken care of that. I don't even hear what you're saying anymore. So I think Johnson may be right about that. It's a good point. Verse 11 continues, and because of the word of their testimony, let's get some help again from Henry Alford. He writes, and on account of the word of their testimony, it's because they have given a faithful testimony even unto death that they are victorious. This is their part, their appropriation of and standing in the virtue of that blood of the Lamb. Without both these, victory would not have been theirs. Both together form its ground. Now we need to expand on this for a moment lest we begin to think Alfred is suggesting that our performance is somehow part of our victory over Satan. 
not fearing to give testimony for Christ in the face of persecution and death, is really all about our perseverance. Turn please to Matthew chapter 10. Last one. Matthew 10, that's Dennis. Matthew 10, verse 22. A brief but very important verse in God's Word. I think we looked at it during the message this morning. Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, we know that that verse means that if one is saved, one will endure to the end. Not the other way around. We are not saved by enduring. We are saved, and because of that, we will endure. If your name is written in the book of life, you will endure to the end. That verse is small consolation, however, without knowing where that endurance or the ability to stand firm comes from. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Well, so far so good. Here's the punchline, though. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. It's from God that our perseverance comes. Just as it is from God our salvation, our faith comes from. Do you have faith? That faith is from God. You don't, it didn't come from within you. It's all of God. Our ability to overcome Satan begins with the atoning blood of Christ and is played out through faith, through the perseverance God grants His children to stand firm, even against the horrific trials and persecution of the tribulation, and give testimony for the gospel. And it continues, And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Oh, by the way, that Romans passage, Romans 15, verses 4 to 5. Sorry. Even unto death, for we know that whatever life we would be trying to save by denying Christ is utterly worthless compared to the life we have and will have in Him. The setting for this hymn of joyful victory is expansive. Let's not be so self-indulgent to imagine that its opening words speak of our personal salvation and the power we each have in Christ. This is a joyful hymn of praise to the Creator God for His ingenious idea that all things from the creation of the first Adam to the creation of the last things to be created All things culminate in the glorious kingdom of Christ. That's what this eschaton, this last things, it's all about. Colossians 1. He is the image. Notice 
I'll make you notice. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Colossians 1, 15-20. That's the most beautiful biography, description of our Savior right there. Verse 11 speaks of those who have persevered through the trials of the tribulation. They have been equipped to conquer Satan because of the atoning blood of Christ and their steadfast testimony for Him. Verse 10, using standard proleptic aorist imagery, announces that because of that victory, the kingdom has arrived. We typically and accurately assign that kingdom to the millennium because it is then that Christ will reign on earth upon His throne. He returns in power and judgment, in wrath, and He sits upon His throne over the entire earth for 1,000 years. True. Quite true. But those thousand years are not the end of all things. Let's not make that mistake. Though Satan will have been locked up in the abyss and Christ will be reigning as king over the entirety of the earth, sin and rebellion will not have been expunged. This will not be the pristine eternal state. During the millennium, there will be one last army organized from those who still hate God. When Satan is released, they will be ready and eager to join him in this final battle against righteousness. So while it's true that Christ's kingdom, or as our passage says, kingdom of God, kingdom of our God, spoken of in verse 10 and myriad passages elsewhere, will be inaugurated when Christ returns in judgment to the end to end the tribulation the full and glorious realization of that kingdom must wait a thousand years for that perfect eternal state in a new Jerusalem on a new earth. All this joy and praise in verses 10 and 11 are based on the defeat of Satan. So verse 12 begins with a call to rejoice over this defeat of the adversary. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Period. 
Please note, don't miss the limitations of this. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That limitation is there because this is certainly not an occasion for rejoicing on earth, which has just received as new residents Satan and his cohort who are, because of their recent defeat, madder than wet hens. Can you imagine? Our text tells us. The rest of verse 12, which we'll examine in our next session, makes clear that instead of rejoicing, this will mean, quote, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you. Having great wrath. That's John's way of saying madder than wet hands. Knowing that he has only a short time. The second part of verse 12 is, as it were, the gateway opening onto the very worst of the tribulation period. It's second three and one half years. Now in conclusion. <clears throat> it would seem that at the very least, this passage is guilty of an inartful and confusing transition from heaven to earth. I'll have my blue pencil when I get to heaven. <laughs> and God will be holding something else. <laughs> but it also may employ an inartful transition from the narrative timeline to either a point in the past, crucifixion, or one of two possible points in the future, that is, future to the narrative timeline, roughly the middle of the tribulation. Or I would suggest we could look at this in a different way, that the Spirit of God has written these verses intentionally vague so as to leave it for us, with His help, of course, to make the connections and suitable application on our own. It's no bad thing to be forced to dig in and dig deep, deeply in Scripture. That's a good thing. To ferret out what the Lord God is telling us. I know I won't be soon forgetting the truth we have discovered buried here. Does anyone have any final thoughts or... We don't really have the time, but I just thought I'd... <laughs> Please, I think there's been a lot in this, a lot to chew on. This, the notes are freely available. Please take advantage of that. God our Father, to mere humans, your word can at times be confusing. We are so delighted by those verses that we can carry around with us and speak at will, and they bring comfort and encouragement, and they're easy to understand, easy to apprehend. Then there are passages like this. Your word is true. Your word is truth. 
Your word is sound. It is just fine the way it is. It's up to us, with the help of your Spirit, to understand it, to digest it, and apply it to our lives. That is our prayer. Please do that, Father, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.